Okay, good evening, everybody. Dear friends, lecturers, and of course, dear speakers and panelists. Welcome to today's event, the London Integration Forum 2011, Exploring Diversity. We are very glad that you came here on this beautiful Friday evening to participate in what we hope is the beginning of a series of annual events which aim to address matters of migration, integration, and multiculturalism in Britain, Germany, and beyond. Before we introduce today's guests and speakers, please allow us to briefly present our motivation to set up the London Integration Forum. Multiculturalism has utterly failed. We need a clear sense of a shared national identity open to everyone. State multiculturalism has failed. This is only a selection of recent statements made by the leaders of our two countries, Germany and Britain. And while providing newsworthy sound bites, the speeches in which these statements were made failed to elaborate on which multiculturalism they were speaking of, why it had allegedly failed, what this arguably required sense of shared national identity should encompass, or what precisely should be undertaken. At a time when migrants and immigrants are made the targets of increasingly dismissive rhetoric, when populist politicians, commentators, and media outlets are singling out sections of our societies, when migration and integration are being equated with anecdotally evidenced problems, while achievements and contributions of our immigrants, as well as host society responsibilities, go unmentioned. At such a time in particular, we should expect our public representatives not to pander to such tendencies, but to present constructive options for future policymaking. But, oh well. Um, what worries us is not so much the slogans of Gerd Wilders or the popularity of Tilo Sarrazin's book, Deutschland schafft sich ab. Um, it is above all the public reaction celebrating these notions as the necessary breaking of a taboo. It seems as if the, the dust which has been blown up by the notorious taboo breakers is clouding the public's view on a simple fact, that during the past decade, sound scientific research on migration, multiculturalism, and successful diverse societies has been carried out, and that integration, or whatever the term means, um, is rather a daily practice than a taboo for the thousands of street workers, teachers, and mayors in Britain and the UK. So how, how do we make a diverse society work? Well, if we finally take this question seriously and, and place it at the center of public attention, it is not the Broders, Sarrazins, Griffins that we should rely on. It is the kind of people that work on this question day by day. It is the kind of people that we are glad to welcome on the stage tonight. Um, this is some of the background what brought us an eclectic group of students and researchers at London School of Economics, SOAS, and King's College together, um, the desire to point at those perspectives and issues which are currently marginalized um, in the public discourse. The idea to, to foster a broader and fuller understanding of the issues at hand. The London Integration Forum aims to go beyond the criticizing often often misrepresented status quo. It is an attempt to frame societal diversity as a field of learning between Germany and the UK and to set off a dialogue between renowned academics from both countries. Tonight, 
We want to call for an integration debate which distinguishes between myth and reality, one that is based on a light culture of respect, a debate that contributes to a constructive vision for the future. We are grateful to the LSE Migration Studies Unit as well as the Sociology Department for hosting us, um, to the LSE Annual Fund for their very generous financial support as well as to the German Academic Exchange Service um, which also generously supported us financially and some of whose fellows are um, among the organizers of tonight's event. And of course we are very honored to welcome an, as I would say, exceptional group of experts. The panelists tonight are going to be Dr. Naika Furuchan and Lamia Kador from Germany, um, Professor Julian Petley, who's at Brunel University, and Dr. Muria Georgiou from, from LSE. And Nasia Hussein uh, from the Open Society Foundation is going to um, chair the panel tonight, and she will, uh, go, uh, she, she will introduce the speakers in more detail. Uh, but first we will begin with an address by Liz Fikete, Executive Director and Head of Research at the Institute of Race Relations here in London. She's a leading authority on issues of racism, Islamophobia, national security legislation and others, and the author of A Suitable Enemy, Racism, Migration and Islamophobia in 21st Century Europe, published in 2009 by Pluto Press. Liz's speech is titled The Rise of Racism and Nationalism in the Age of Austerity, 21st Century Challenges in Multicultural Europe, and will for sure provide us with many insights on issues framing the following panel's presentations and discussions. We're very grateful to her for speaking here tonight. Now please join me in welcoming Ms. Liz Fikater. First to say, Congratulations for organising this really, really important event. And I thought that introduction was, was excellent. Um, not only that, it's helped explain why I'm here. I wish I'd heard it sort of a few days ago before I was preparing. Um, I want to start by reminding the historians here about a book that Winston Churchill wrote in 1948. It was his history um, of the Second World War and the first volume was called The Gathering Storm and in this volume he described the various elements that contributed to the rise of Hitler uh, and the events that, that, that started the Second World War. The Gathering Storm, The Gathering Storm for me, this is an apt turn of phrase, and it describes how I feel about the times we are living in. I feel that the violent winds of the economic crisis and the cruel austerity measures targeted at the most vulnerable are battering us this way and that, and leading to a feeling of social helplessness, and that here we are again, once again, looking for scapegoats in the eye of a gathering storm. Now, when I was asked to, to, to speak at this meeting, uh, Ali, one of the organisers, sent me a briefing, and one of the questions he asked was, how do we formulate a vision for the future after the widely proclaimed alleged end of multiculturalism? And I'd like to add a question to this. What role can academics 
researchers play in defending our multicultural society from the gathering storm. And that's why I liked the introduction. At the Institute of Race Relations, where I work, we're actually doing a project at the moment on racial violence across the country. And we're often asked to speak at meetings. And the hilarious thing, not so hilarious, the crazy thing is after the last few weeks, we've been asked to speak at loads of forums to do with hate crimes. And we've been asked to speak on the motion, is multiculturalism dead? Or is multiculturalism a good thing? And it's kind of, why are people who are organising around hate crimes starting with that question when it's the whole attack on multiculturalism around Europe that is leading to an increase of racial violence and hate? So I hope today, out of this meeting, we can really think about how we can begin to start asking the right questions and start from the beginning of defending our multicultural society, not saying is multicultural a good thing or bad. Another thing I'd like to say is that quite often and, and the, the, the int people introducing, they talked about the really good comparative work that is done by academics and there's a lot of great stuff out there. But sometimes um, when we're looking at comparisons and we're doing comparative work and we're looking at the, uh, uh, the differences between Germany and Britain, there's a lot of differences in our history. There's a lot of differences in the first patterns of migration, the fact that Britain was a colonial country, that, that because of the black struggle here, there was more acceptance of multiculturalism. But what I find at the moment is actually what is interesting is not so much the differences between the countries, but it's about the convergence. Increasingly, all the European countries are beginning to look the same. We're all going down a model of assimilation. And for us in the UK, this is particularly depressing because we used to feel, because we'd recognised institutionalised racism, we had a feeling that we were a bit better. We were a bit more advanced than the rest of Europe. So what I think is important is convergence. And at the moment, we're seeing a terrifying convergence of the extreme right. Uh, Geert Wilders is going to soon be launching the International Freedom Alliance, which is an alliance between the US Tea Party, European extreme right movements, and settler organisations in Israel. What is frightening is the convergence of the attack of multi on the attack on multiculturalism. Every, I, I wrote a little paper, the Institute has a news service and I'd encourage you all to sign up to it. It's called the Alternative Race and Refugee News Service. I've got some leaflets in my bag. And we try to give you the stories that you don't get in the newspapers. And recently I wrote a little briefing paper. Every, nearly every centre-right politician of every country in Europe made the same speech on multiculturalism and the death of multiculturalism. Why is there this convergence? And there is also convergence on patterns of racial violence and hate. So what I'm going to do in the remaining time is give you a short, snap, a short little picture, a little snapshot of what's happening in Europe. Speak a little bit about the creation of scapegoats and then talk about the need for us here today to start the process of redefining progressive values. My work involves really collating information from the ground about 
racial violence, extreme right, anti-refugee, anti-Muslim sentiment. And I can tell you that the events of the last six months have been truly awful. They shocked me, and I've been doing this work for 17 years. I started out doing this work when there were po pogroms in Rostock and Hoyeschwerda, and there was the, the anti-refugee sentiment in Germany. I started out doing this work when Le Pen was calling for a campaign of national preference and now I find that mainstream politicians are asking for national preference in employment policy. So this is a very depressing moment. I've already talked about the convergence in the attack on multiculturalism. If you read the newspapers over the last six months you would see that in the villages of Hungary where the Roma have suffered most from the move from a command economy to a market economy. The civic guard for a better future, clad in black military uniform and sporting whips and, and dogs, are occupying Roma villages and terrifying the inhabitants. This revival of rural racism in Hungary, is, there's patterns, similar patterns across Europe with variations. And you will see that in Germany there is presently a, presently a new phenomenon of the neo-Nazi National Democratic Party taking over depopulated villages and trying to establish sort of Nazi zones there. In southern Europe there's another pattern of extreme anti-migrant violence. Only a couple of, uh, a few weeks ago, a month or so ago, over 100 African and Asian migrant workers were hospitalized and Ali Abdul Manan, a Bangladeshi migrant worker, was killed after a far-right party orchestrated three days of anti-immigrant violence in downtown Athens. And one pattern which is the same across the whole of Europe of a populist campaigns against Muslims constant attacks on mosques. I know in Berlin there have been repeated arson of mosques. Here as well, only a couple of weeks ago, just after the government announced its new prevent agenda, preventing violent extremism agenda, and stigmatized five areas of the country as hotbeds of extremist Muslim, uh, Muslims. Lo and behold, mosques in those areas received uh, parcels with white powder and threatening letters. The Sultan Ebb Mosque in Strasbourg received an envelope with white paper, powder, a page from the Quran torn and partially burned with a message from the movement for the European Liberation Movement. And the, the message said, leave our land, choose the suitcase or the coffin. And of course, we know that in Germany, Marwa el-Shabini was murdered by a man who called her an Islamist whore on account of wearing the headscarf. And how do our leaders respond? In most cases, they are silent about the violence. They don't say anything. And when they do, they search for a new right vocabulary with a lexicon of national victimhood. This is Cameron. Cameron talks about our passively tolerant society and he implies that this wonderful goodness this wonderful tolerance is under threat from Muslim minorities and new migrants who demand special privileges and group rights group rights is their definition of multiculturalism 
There has never been any multiculturalism in any European country based on special privileges and group rights for minorities. It's, uh, it shows how far we have, we have come that, that that is being treated as a given that everybody accepts there's been this conspiracy to establish group rights and that is multiculturalism. Cameron also speaks about those minorities who refuse to learn the language. Do you know any migrant who doesn't want to leave the language, to learn the language? Most migrants I know speak several languages. I only speak English. I feel completely dumb compared to them. Real communities, Cameron says. Migrants threaten real communities. You know, the ones who like to go down to the pub and have some beer. You know, old ladies on little bikes with their baskets, the real England. Real communities are bound together by common experiences forged by friendship and conversation. It seems to me that what our leaders are actually offering us in exchange for the so-called state doctrine of multiculturalism is the state doctrine of monoculturalism or the forced imposition of a national light culture, leading culture. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been watching, I don't normally watch television. My daughter always is watching some rubbish and I can never get to it. But I've been watching the news recently. And first we had Kate and William and the marriage. Then we had the Duke of Edinburgh's 90th birthday. Then we had the Queen's cousin was finally going to speak about her experiences as Lady of Waiting. Then we had Kate and William go to Wimbledon. And now we've got Kate and William in Canada. If this is British culture, get me out of here. I can't stand it. It's stultifying. So, this attack on multiculturalism, what does it mean? It means nativism. Basically, we're back to a situation of nativists. Natives first. British jobs for British workers, as Gordon Brown said. And we're back to natives and aliens. We're back to a situation where we don't have integration policy, we don't have policies against discrimination, we have the foreigners law, we have the aliens law. And I'll give you some examples of what is going to happen if we don't look out and if we don't do something and get ourselves organised. Denmark and Netherlands are very interesting. This has just happened in the last few weeks. Um, the Danish um, Integration Minister Soren Pind has, said, has announced that in future integration policy is going to be based on preferential treatment. Immigrants from developing countries will no longer treat, be treated equally with those from develop, developed countries. That's Denmark. Sorry, did I say the Netherlands? That's Denmark. Netherlands. Integration Minister Piet Eindonner. He says that policies supporting ethnic minorities are to be a thing of, part of the past and in future every migrant will have to take responsibility for their own integration. They will, he will put an end to policies that target groups and there will be no more special treatment for Antillians, Turks, Turks, Moroccans and other minorities. Basically this means that voluntary sector groups, groups fighting discrimination are going to find their funding cut. I think we're going to have a real battle when with cuts are coming through, what is going to be easier than to cut uh, any money 
it's going to fighting discrimination. I, I really think that we have a real battle on our hand. So basically, without integration policy, without money going to fight discrimination or, or for the integration of minorities and new migrants, we have a new basis of integration policy, and that's integration by insult. The idea is that somebody like Geer Wilders comes in, says as many horrible things as possible, smacks you metaphorically around the face, gives you a hard time, and you as a Muslim are meant to laugh, because if you don't laugh, you haven't got a sense of humour. You know, and that's really, I heard somebody, I heard John Humphreys say this on the radio once, I nearly threw something at the radio. He was interviewing a, a young Muslim chap and he said, oh come on, you Muslims don't have any sense of humour, do you? I mean like, you know, Muslims don't have any sense of humour? I mean how could you exist in this society without a sense of humour? And after, um, you know, the recent judgement of Geert Wilders, um, the president of the Turkish Umbrella Organisation made this comment. The verdict means that everything is permitted in the Netherlands as long as you find the right context. What's next to be thrown in our face? I know what's next because I'm researching this at the moment. I'm trying to get through this. It's the all Muslims are paedophilia argument. Um, and what basically, you go on the English Defence League website, you'll see the, the basis of it. But the English Defence League get their arguments from the new right. They get their arguments from people like Melanie Phillips, Douglas Murray, um, you know the guys in, in, in the, and the women in Germany, Hersey Ali, the rest of them. They're not, you know, it's meant out that these are just sort of white working class um, thugs, but where are their arguments coming from? And you go on to the new right, and there's prosecution, isn't there, in the Netherlands at the moment for somebody from the Free Press Association who basically said that Muslim uncles rape their nieces. Uh, and there's uh, incest in Muslim families. And if you look at the arguments, what they, they are saying now, what the latest insult to be thrown in the people's face is that all Muslims are paedophiles because the Prophet was a paedophile. The Prophet took a nine-year-old wife. Therefore, because all Muslims take the Quran literally, because they can't interpret it, because they take it literally, all Muslims are paedophiles. That's the next thing to be thrown in the face. Let me conclude by talking about, go back to the original question, how do we formulate a vision for the future after the widely proclaimed alleged end of multiculturalism? As I said before, it's about asking the right questions. It's about us setting the agenda, defining the terms of debate. It's not about us inviting Tilo Sarazen to the LSC and allowing him onto the platform on the terms of debate made by him. Is it the same in Germany that's happening here, that you're actually having debates uh, within frameworks set by Sarazan? That's what I've come here to learn from the, speak from the other speakers. If we were all to formulate a vision and set the terms of debate, we have to start on the basis of principles. All the arguments around the veil and the full face veil, the burqa, the niqab, are always based on emotional reactions. We all have prejudices, we all have emotional reactions, but we have to start on the basis of a principle. And it seems to me the principle is a woman's right to choose. And just as a state does not have the right to tell a woman to wear a full face covering, a state doesn't have the right to tell a woman to take it off. 
that's the basis of a principle. We also have to talk, uh, begin to get frameworks that redefine secularism. Because what's happening at the moment is the debate on visible Islam, on mosques and veils and beards, is often being set, not even by the extreme right, but by people who think that they are liberals, but actually hold a very dogmatic interpretation of secularism. Secularism for them means no religion in the public space. But a progressive view of secularism does not say that. A progressive view of secularism says that the state does not identify itself with any particular me religious message, but guarantees the religious rights of all and guarantees the rights of religious minorities. Um, last couple of years, um, I've been going around Europe in a project called Alternative Voices on Integration. And this is based on interviews with grassroots organisations who I asked, what does integration mean to you? What do you want from integration? And basically the message that came back is we're fed up of all this integration into values which the government is giving us. It's all about lifestyle, it's about what you wear, whether you go to the pub, um, all this stuff. We don't want integration into values. We want to go back to the old structural arguments about integration into the employment market, integration into education. But also we want a civil rights framework. And this civil rights framework, if we start from a position that what we want our governments to do is to maximise civil rights for all, and in this way the problems of living together can be resolved around principal discussions about civil rights, not emotions, not hysteria and hate-mongering, but a return to civility and tolerance in public right, life. So I say today, if there's a frameworks that academics work within. Let it be a civil rights framework. Let it be one that defends multiculturalism, not culturalism or ethnicism, because there are things that we now have a chance to throw out. And what we had, the things that we had in this country, was not multiculturalism, but often culturalism and ethnicism as a way of managing and controlling society. And I've got a little, some handouts here if anyone's interesting. Our director, Dr. Sivanandan, wrote a little piece called The Seven Theses of Multiculturalism, where he makes a, a distinction between a reactionary multiculturalism based on ethnicism and a progressive multiculturalism linked to anti-racism. Let's have a framework that defends pluralism and dissent and opposes the mind-boggling stultification of monoculturalism. Let us have a framework that does more investigation into this new language of national victimhood. And let's have some criticism too of the academics who are paving the way to monoculturalism and the new nativism. I think, although it is a bleak moment, there are many opportunities there for us. And if we have a world to win, we must win it now. For to paraphrase Charles Dickens, we live in the best of times and the worst of times. But the winter of despair and the season of darkness could still give rise to the spring of hope. Thank you.
Thank, thank you very much, Liz. Liz uh, I think this was a, was a great opening talk. Um, and if you, dear audience, audience um, have any questions regarding with regard to, to her talk, please wait until the panel because we're going to have like a, a joint Q&A session. Okay, now, now we're coming to our panel. Um, the panel is going to be chaired by Nasia Hussein. Nasia Hussein is the director of the Open Society Foundation's project at home in Europe which focuses on integration policies and practices in 11 cities across the European Union. Um, she's also directing research on the impact of public policies on identity and belonging and leads advocacy efforts from the research finding. So uh, please join me in welcoming, welcoming uh, Nazia Hussein and our panelists. Um, thank you very much to the uh, to the LSE and to the various different um, research forums that are part of this particular project uh, that we have been invited to today, and to yourselves too to repeat what uh, one of the organisers said uh, for giving of your time on this uh, Friday um, evening. Um, and I'd like to begin by just explaining what the format of our panel discussion today will be. Um, as you can see, we have four panelists here of various different eminence in their field, and I will begin by asking them to give a five-minute statement on their main argument. And I will then go into questions and then open it up to you as an audience. Um, I'd like this session to be quite interactive, um, so we're going to go into the audience um, question and answer uh, about 35-40 minutes after we've had the uh, initial panel discussion. And I'm going to ask Liz to come and join us as well. I don't know if she's still here, but can somebody make sure that she gets back? There she is. <laughs> I've got questions for you. <laughs> so um, I'm going to start um, with the... Um, very first panellist. And to make life much easier for, uh, for myself, um, I will start with uh, Myra here on my, uh, on my right. Uh, Myra um, is a lecturer at the Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics. And she's also a researcher on transnational communication and cosmopolitan identities. So I'd like to ask Myra to uh, give us five minutes. And I'm going to try and be strict. So um, do you mind if I please do go, go up and use the forum. Thank you. OK, thank you very much. I would like to also thank the organizers for um, bringing us all here tonight. Um, so um, I've been invited to share an idea with uh, the other panelists and the audience here tonight. And the idea I want to share with everybody is the problem of difference. Um, and what I'm going to talk about, or at least start talking about, is the problem of difference. And probably we wouldn't be here tonight if there wasn't a problem with difference. Some of you might think that this is a r the wrong place to claim that uh, difference in itself creates a problem. Um, but perhaps if I make some references to recent political <coughs> debates and some of the discourse who, uh, 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 that um, Liz herself also referred to, the problem of difference will make sense. So I want to refer briefly to some of the arguments that uh, the British uh, Prime Minister has recently made in the 
famous or infamous speech about the death of multiculturalism, as well as a more recent uh, speech uh, by Theresa May, the Home Secretary, when she presented the new version of the anti-terrorism um, agenda um, under uh, titled Prevent. So, uh, there are four points, I think, in this kind of very, uh, very prominent top-down discourse about the death of multiculturalism that points the finger to difference. So the Prime Minister in that speech, in that February speech, he said that um, migration puts pressure on communities up and down the country. The references to the pressures presented obviously by the newcomers to these old established communities. He also added, point two, real communities are bound by common experiences. Indeed, common experiences take time, usually refer to common histories, but also to common orientations. Thus, there might be a valid question there about the possibility of building common experiences if people come from different places, and if they have different uh, histories, and even more so if they have different orientations. Just like more or less what happens in London now. Um, the third uh, key point that the Prime Minister made was that about the link between cultural segregation and terrorism. So uh, the main argument here is that uh, communities that develop distinct cultural spheres um, around their cultural particularity create spaces uh, for the development of uh, terrorist um, uh, discourses and practice and they spread in, within the segregated sp spaces we can see the spreading of hatred against the majority population. And the last point that I want to make about the problem of difference is that uh, uh, which came in Theresa May's words when she said that the government will not work with any organization which does not accept fundamental and universal values. Presumably all decent people understand what she's talking about, and they do share those universal and fundamental values. Those who don't accept them or understand them or adhere to them, they don't belong. So a very brief, not very academic analysis of this discourse. Three main points. Change to communities is challenging and even threatening. Point two, cultural particularity can be a threat to universalism. Point three, common experience brings with it social harmony. So in this context, difference cannot but lead to crisis. This is an inevitable reality. So the inevitability of the problem with difference is that, um, is that of difference itself. So difference, anything that does not fit within what we might call, in certain occasions, national values, in other universal values, in other occasions, fundamental values. Um, if it doesn't fit, it's other. So what we see, I think, and, and as the previous speaker said, we might have a retreat to a discourse which is about a very rigid national community or a very rigid European community, whatever that is, um, against those others. So those who look different, act different, speak different, watch different media are others. And there is an assumption with this, I think, that is equally important as that of the uh, creation of those others, the emergence of otherness. Those people are others to us. So us, whoever we are, 
seem to be de facto sharing community. So that's the time to see the people who are sitting next to you and, uh, and introduce yourselves to the other members of your community. We share history. And of course, we share the, this ideal uh, about the fundamental and universal values that bring us together. Thus, we do not challenge and do not um, uh, question those universal values. But do we? So if the problem is not difference, where do we look, look for a different scenario or a different possibility of answers? As long as people coming from elsewhere or uh, people who look different or have different uh, uh, packages which they, have, uh, they carry and different histories, as long as these people are expected to adjust to a given society, the reproduction of their otherness and the problem of difference is inevitable. The reason is clear. Societies do change, and the idea of a homogeneous predominant community does not exist. Definitely not now, if it ever did exist. Uh, so there is a surreal peculiarity here. We, who are considered to be part of the community, the predominant community, don't really know what we share. But those others certainly are expected to know and act upon those values that we're not ourselves sure about. So this is the, uh, the dominant uh, top-down narrative that is, uh, 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 is hegemonic and, and most visible in the current politics about the management of difference. But I will now turn very briefly in, the, in two, one and a half minutes that I have left, um, to, uh, to more academic answer to, to this problem. And I will refer very briefly to a research which I just uh, completed which, with one of those most problematic groups within our European societies, Arab-speaking communities in Europe. And I will turn very briefly and give you three points out of our research that actually show that this top-down narrative has little to do with the critically important nuances of difference which are, not, um, uh, which are not represented in politics and which are very much part of how cultural belonging is constructed, not only for minorities and migrants, but for any member of the society. So the reference is to a cross-European study that we did with, uh, uh, funded by the EU. I have a documentary if, uh, uh, and a DVD. If anybody would like to take a copy, you can shout me, give me a shout at the end of the session. And we looked at the contested area of satellite Arabic television. A lot has been said. In Denmark, uh, there is an attempt to ban, actually, Arabic television for spreading hatred. Many of these debates are well known. So we did a survey, point one, that I want to mention in relation to this other side of difference. Our survey in six European uh, capital cities shows that almost everybody of our participants does watch Arabic television. So there is no doubt that their television use is different to many other European communities. Does this present a threat? Among those people, 2,500 uh, more or less, almost 93% also use our, uh, European media alongside Arabic media. So the evidence shows that there is no retreat to distinct and different ethnic worlds, as we are very often told. Arguably, also as a media scholar, I would say that this 
Actually, this kind of practice shows a higher level of media literacy, very often discussed in association to democracy, than many other parts, uh, sections of the population. So who are these audiences others to, and why? And are at least some of these people more or less active citizens than other people that imagine a majority community they're compared to? Point two, very briefly. Um, most participants demonstrated that their primary cultural attachments are to distant communities. So emotionally and culturally, they reach across the nation. This is the threat we're often told about. However, and very importantly, when they talk about citizenship, almost nobody challenged any of the uh, values associated with democracy. So if cultural commonality with other cultural groups within a national community is not there, as communities are required to do. Is, however, uh, uh, the same people adhere to the values of democracy? Is this a group really problematic in the context of integration? And last point, very quickly, that of otherness. Otherness does not have to do with our academic uh, analysis alone, unfortunately. But it's a discourse that these, uh, uh, these people actually uh, see in themselves and in the way that they are represented in the public sphere. So I want to refer in closing to a, uh, to a quotation by one of our participants, a man, an Arab man uh, over 46 years old, saying, I accuse the European media for not catering for people like me. They don't talk about Arabs or about Egypt. They only talk about Muslims. I genuinely believe that at some point I was part of this society. Now I feel that this society doesn't want me. It's not that I ever felt that I was English, but I felt I had a lot in common with them. Now I feel that I'm indirectly accused of being a terrorist, of being a problem that they have to tolerate. So could the actual problems policymakers try to solve be the rise of nativism and naming the others? alongside the increase of social inequalities? Could recognition and respect of real differences, not only those commodified and decorative differences, actually be the only answer to achieving social cohesion? Thank you. Thank you very much, Myra. I think I've just failed in my moderation role, <laughs> but that was really interesting. Thank you. Um, I'm going to introduce our next speaker, who is sat here to my right, um, Lamia, Lamia Kador. Lamia has written a book, and I'm not even going to attempt to say the German um, title of this book, but from what I understand, the translation is Muslim, Female, German, My Life for a Timely Islam. She's also a winner of the European Muslim Women's List of Influence, which took place in Madrid last year, uh, facilitated by the Institute of Strategic Dialogue. And so she is uh, one of the top ten most influential Muslim women in Europe. So I'm going to hand the mic over to Lamia and ask her to uh, speak to us. <coughs> Thank you very much. Well, yeah, all my words. I have two remarks. Um, first of all, no, three remarks. First of all, sorry if my English is not that perfect. Um, the second one, you can see it on behind of me. I would say there are two very important points in my point of view. First of all, yeah, that the debate in, uh, about Islam in Germany is um, 
getting more and more emotional and less objective. Maybe you know why. Zaratin is one of them, and uh, you even mentioned it. Nejla Kelek uh, said on Atish, maybe even a factor. Um, I don't know. And the second point, I will come to it after, to it some, some, some minutes to it. And the second point is many Muslims identify themselves more and more uh, as a Muslim and with the Islam. After 9-11, um, as some people, people of you know, <coughs> I'm teaching at school, um, mainly in the fifth to tenth form, so pupils in the age between, I would say, 11 and even 18, um, if they have to repeat the form sometimes. Um, and they, it's really quite clear, more of them, more and more of them are, are even identify themselves more and more with the Islam. But if I ask them, what is Islam for you? There is no answer because Islam is, if they give me an answer, of course Islam is, we, we don't and we have. We have to and we, we, we don't have to, of course. We have to fast, we have to pray, we have to give some uh, zakat, we have to go to Mecca and we are not allowed to, to eat uh, pork, we are not allowed to drink, we are not allowed to, I don't know what, and this is Islam for them. But at the same time, the, the, identif the identification with Islam is going stronger. And now we have to ask ourselves, why is that that's that way? I would say it is uh, the problem, is, is a part of it is the media, of course, because our media in Germany <laughs> is very fixed on Muslims. And I would say, and this is now point one, to go back to it, um, on the one hand, on the one hand, we have um, our Islam debate is dominated by two extremes. I would say in Germany, on the one hand, we have the ultra-conservative Muslims that are that are demonstrated as the Muslims. All the Muslims in Germany, like, are like these people that are the first. They were the first. For example, they were the first when Marwa Shevin was killed. Um, and, and there are even uh, photos uh, with, the, with the widower on the internet. But they were the last that even gave a statement when uh, Hatun Sudicu was killed uh, by honor killing in Berlin. They even gave a statement for that. So even their role in Germany, they are not speaking for all the Muslims, but they, they like to speak for all the Muslims. This is the only, the one is extreme on the one hand. The other hand, or the other extreme, I would say, are the so-called Islam critics. As I call them, Nedja Kelik is, of course, one of them. Hendrik Broder is the second. Thilo Zarazin, yes, okay. Um, and they, of course, I tried to translate it because it's terrifying to translate the sentence from Nedja Kelik. Um, she said for some time ago, I think it's now one year ago, in the German television, for example, um, every Muslim man has to follow his non-oppressing sexuality. If he can't empty himself in a woman, he will take an animal. And that is normal. <laughs> this is something she, she said in the German television, not, not something she, she uh, said on, on a panel or something in private, no. It is said officially. And um, people like us, has to, to, to comment it. And it's really, really hard if uh, the so-called Muslims, she calls herself Muslim, okay, it's not, it's not my turn or my part to say she is or she is not. 
um, I doesn't care about it. But it is really hard for people like uh, me to comment it. <laughs> Even my comment is clear to it. But I would say this debate in is about Islam in Germany is quite difficult because there's this this extreme or the other extreme. But the gap between us, the middle isn't, isn't filled. The voice of liberal Muslims or the voice of the normal Muslims, not ultra-conservative, um, are not, the voice is not heard, is not, he is not heard, isn't heard, yeah. Um, I tried my best last year to, to fill this gap maybe with one voice. Um, we tried to establish, um, what is fine in, in English, sorry? Association, yeah. We tried to establish an association. We called it Liberal Islamischer Bund, Liberal Islamic Foundation. <coughs> in order to give these kind of Muslims um, a voice. And now we have about 100 members. Okay, you may say it's not, a, it's not a lot, but it is a lot for one year. You have to know that the, the existing uh, Islamic foundations or associations in Germany are now 30 or 40 years old, even more than that. Until now, we don't have, we don't have Islamic uh, religious instruction in schools. We don't have really a, a hard youth work or something with them. We don't have even nothing. We have nothing in Germany for, for Islamic youth, for example. So it is, I'm very, I'm very, I'm a, I, I, do, I do my critics on them, okay, because I don't feel myself represent, represent, oh God, my English is uh, terrifying. Um, I don't feel represent, how do we say? Representative. Yeah, not rep Thank you, not represented. <coughs> and I think if I see my pupils, there there is nobody who's speaking for them. They are, most of them are living in a quarter, in a small quarter. Everything is working in, in Turkish language. They are not forced to speak Germany because the doctor, the medicine man, the gardener, the bakery, everyone is speaking Turkish. And now you can say, yeah, of course, these are these are so-called uh, parallel, how should we say in Germany, Parallelgesellschaften, parallel uh, societies, but we can't blame the pupils for it. We can't blame these kids for that life. So I would say we have to, 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 criti to criticize uh, our so society and also our politicians because they, I would say they do really anything against all these situations. No, I would say even our conservative or our uh, social party are feeling very comfortable with that situation. Uh, so my, and this was the interest of my book, is to give also another point of view in all this discussion, not to say that integration and being a Muslim is automatically something, yeah, uh, unbelievable. No, for me it is something normal, of course. Um, so maybe and I think this, uh, the discussion even in here in England or in America or I don't know where is nearly the same. Uh, but correct me if it is, if it is not the same, but I, I'm, um, I'm just a little bit afraid of it that uh, in the next five to ten years uh, there will be no really no change, no change in 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 the in the media or in in, in all this in the debate. Are we close to here? And then. Good forward. Great. Thank you. Thank you.
to my left is Professor Julian Petley, who is a professor of screen media and journalism at the uh, Brunel University. Um, he's also co-editor of a book called Pointing the Finger, Islam and Muslims in the British Media. And I think you may have a copy with him. There we go. <laughs> plug, <laughs> plug, plug. <laughs> and um, he's also a member of the editorial boards of the British Journalism Review, uh, Vertigo and Fifth Estate Online, as well as being a principal editor of the Journal of British Cinema and Television. And uh, I'm sure we're all very interested to hear what are some of the key findings uh, from your... Uh, another plug, from your <laughs> book, uh, but also generally in terms of the research that you've undertaken looking at the media landscape. Thank you. Okay, Ed, thanks very much. Well, yes, I am going to talk about uh, the media, and I'm not going to plug my book too hard either. But my main interest really in, in the media is looking at media representations of reality and then comparing those with the actual reality. I'm not one of those postmodernists who thinks that there's no such thing as reality and all you've ever got is representations. So I've been very interested in looking at the gaps between the two. I've done work on lots of areas, uh, Labour left-wing councils in London, the miners when they were on strike, and even unpleasant things like uh, video nasties as well. And the, the latest thing I have looked at most certainly is the phenomenon of how Islam and Muslims have been represented in the media post 9-11. I want to start off with sort of one or two little axioms, which I don't think would, would, would be controversial. One is that the media are indeed representations of reality. They're not a, a window on the world. Um, they're not even a mirror. They're a kind of distorting mirror, which reflects reality in, in various different ways. That's the first point. The second point is that the media play a very, very important role in setting the agenda. You open the newspapers every day, turn on the television, turn on the radio. All the stories really are much the same. They might be treated differently by different media, but the stories are much the same. So the media do play a very important role in setting the agenda. They don't tell us what to think, or they, they, they may try to do so in some cases, but they certainly tell us what they think is important, what is newsworthy um, every, every day. Um, and finally, of course, they have a great deal of political power, particularly in this country, the, the, the national press, which I'll come on to and talk about last. You've only got to see the way in which, for example, just this week and last week, the campaigns by The Sun and the Daily Mail have completely managed to derail uh, part of uh, Ken Clark's strategy on getting people out of prison. Now, we, we talk about the media, but I want to try and disaggregate these a bit. First of all, then, the broadcasters. I think if we're interested in trying to get messages across about multiculturalism, um, better representations of minority groups of one kind or another, the broadcasters are a good place to operate upon, partly because they have, you know, in this country, statutory commitments to impartiality and um, objectivity and diversity. It's all written into the BBC editorial guidelines, it's written into the 
Ofcom Broadcasting Code. It's all there in the Communications Act 2003. That's the first point. The second point is they are, to some extent, the broadcast media, accountable. As you've seen, it's quite difficult to complain to the broadcast media and get your complaint accepted, unless you're Primark, of course. But um, nonetheless, they are supposed to be accountable, and there are accountability mechanisms. But a worry here, I think, is that recently, particularly when it comes to the representation of Muslims and, and Islam and other kind of others, I've noticed there's been a tendency for the broadcasters to kind of accept what is increasingly a press set agenda and to become really quite negative here. I'm thinking in particular of three uh, panorama programs by John Ware um, about Muslims and various dispatches programs as well, where it seems to me what is being followed here is very much a kind of press set agenda. Okay, second category of media is the local press. I think, again, the local press, the local newspaper press, is a good place to try to intervene in, in, in debates. Because, first of all, local newspapers, unlike national newspapers, can't afford to alienate large sections of their uh, potential readership. If, you're, if a newspaper is being published in an area where, for example, there are plenty of Muslims or people of other uh, ethnicities or other faiths, for instance, it's much, much more difficult for the local newspaper to piss those people off, basically, than it is that the national press. And also, local journalists are embedded in their local communities, and they do actually know quite a bit more about those communities than national press journalists actually do. So I think one should never write off the, um, the national press, the local press, sorry, but they are, they are areas in which you can intervene. The real problem, however, this is my final point, comes with the national press in this country, the daily national and, and Sunday press. Now, you know, we have a fair number of papers in this country. The problem is there are really only three newspapers, in my view, which you could call liberal. They would be The Independent, um, The Guardian, and actually The Financial Times as well. All the rest, it seems to me, in one way or another, are kind of illiberal, and I would also like to use the word kind of authoritarian populist. I think the word populism is coming back into a lot of critical discourse these days and with every very good reason because I think we see increasingly a kind of populist demagoguery around us and particularly in, in the press. I know other countries like Germany, for example, do have illiberal papers like built or um, Austria may have the Kronenzeitung but no other European country that I'm aware of, Liz may correct me if, if I'm wrong here, has such an overwhelmingly and dominant illiberal press as we actually have here. Now what's the reason for this? Well there's, there are various reasons. Um, one, the nature of the owners, people like Richard Desmond, Rupert Murdoch, um, the Rothermeers who tend to appoint editors who have their who, who have similar points of view. And a lot of journalists are not bad people. I speak as a, a former journalist myself, but you know, if you're a journalist on an extremely right-wing paper, uh, you would be ill-advised to um, pursue a line that doesn't really go with, with the line of your newspaper. Secondly, economics. It's important to bear in mind the economic factor. Newspapers are commercial organs. They're, they're there to make money. We know that you know, press circulations are, are massively declining. But in that situation, it really doesn't pay, I think, to 
question readers' prejudices and their common sense views of the world. You won't put on readers that way. You will at least keep readers, I think, by pandering to what they think they know already. I didn't touch that. Oh, is it possible to, f Can you to switch take the, the light down? I don't know. Or off? I will, I will try to do that. I'll, I'll just, I'll just, sure, I'll just wind up in, in, in the meantime. I was saying it doesn't pay to question what readers think that they know already. And particularly in very uncertain times like these, like I think Liz and other speakers have, have really well outlined, it doesn't pay to question people's sense of their own identity. I think we live in times where, <coughs> where identities are becoming, for some people at least, are becoming very, very, very fragile. There are all sorts of reasons for that. Um, you know, globalization, the, the membership in, of, of this country in, in, in the European Union, the fact that the Scots and Welsh seem to be going their own separate ways. There's a real kind of identity crisis, I think, afflicting the English in particular. I do want to stress uh, the English here rather than the British. Now, I think that newspapers are very much in the business of, you know, trying to reflect what readers think their identities actually actually are. And of course one of the ways in which we define ourselves as who we are is in opposition to who we're not. We define ourselves in opposition to others. And we, I'm afraid, see now another kind of greater uh, procession of others being put before us um, by, the, by the national press. So in my view, to try to intervene in what is essentially, in my view, a kind of deeply ideological operation is very, very difficult. I've suggested ways in which we can intervene in other forms of media. I think when it comes to the national press, really what we have to do is get into the business of critique, contestation, trying to persuade politicians who are incredibly frightened about what they read in the national press. You know, they wake up every morning terrified of what the Daily Mail uh, may have said. You have to try and persuade them that this is not actually public opinion. You know, the only really reliable index of public opinion is the British Social Attitude Survey, which is published every year, which, you know, in spite of the newspapers that we have, still show that liberal values do predominate in this country. We also, I think, have to argue for things like a statutory right of reply and conscience clauses for journalists. I can't really see otherwise how we can uh, intervene in, in, in certain areas of the national press. You're wasting your time if you go and complain to newspapers or write to the editor or worse still, the, 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 the Press Complaints Commission. It really is very, very difficult in, in, indeed. So the message is not one of kind of complete negativity and despair. It's intervene where you can and in what ways you can, but it's, it's different for different kinds of media. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is the light okay? Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, when we get to the question and answer, I'll come to you first. Um, okay, our final speaker is um, Dr. Nika. Farutan. Um, she's a director of a research project called the Hybrid European Muslim Identities. 
and this is funded by the Volkswagen Foundation um, at the Humboldt University in uh, Berlin. Um, she was also somebody who responded to um, Thilo Sarrazin's uh, book, and um, I'd like to ask Dr. Nika to um, give us her findings. Thank you very much for being invited here. I'm very happy to be here, especially because I know that there are so many German-speaking people sitting here who can help me out if there is some word missing in my mind. I just drop it in, in German and ask you to translate it for me, please. Okay, well, I am invited here to speak a little bit about the German case. And uh, um, as you most, most of you know, because I know that you have invited Thilo Zaratzin here a few months ago, so well, most of you will know about the debate that happened in Germany. I just want to give you a just small opening statement about the German situation in terms of diversity and difference. And uh, we just uh, have to state that Germany has become very plural within the last 40 years. Since until now, it has very much difficulties to acknowledge that it has become, in fact, an immigration country. But we have to state that in Germany, every fifth inhabitant has a so-called migration background. And um, this even holds true for every third child. And if you just go ahead and look into the big German cities, like, for example, Frankfurt, you have to say that more than 60% of the people going into school this year have a so-called migration background. This term, migration background, is a very uh, strange term that has been invented in 2005 in Germany when the microcensus tried to figure out of all those people who had become German by passport whose parents or grandparents could come from another place which is not German. So in fact we have that 20% uh, migration background now there and uh, we have, we will see that diversity is getting something which is normal by facts and by reality but it is still not normal by emotions. So we can see that the main paradigm somehow persisting there is the idea of Germany being a homogeneous society which in fact Germany has been in the years after World War II. So this is the difficulty we have with the idea of diversity, that there is the generation of people 60 years plus who has a, an idea of Germany which was homogeneous in fact in their youth time. And um, these people are mainly the biggest voting group. So the political parties somehow have to react on these people. And last year's debate have clearly shown that the distance of the population towards the diversity in Germany is very high. We had the debates around the book of Tilo Zarazin, which on the surface were mainly centered around one group, the group of Muslims. And in this book he could say things like, Muslims are less intelligent, are too fertile, um, the culture of Islam is incompatible uh, to the culture of Germany. And uh, we really had to discuss that out something like four or five months, and it was the same situation that Lamia described. You were just looking at that and you just couldn't believe that some stuff like this was discussed in German television. And sorry, I didn't get your point, but maybe we can sorry, discuss uh, on it later. Excuse me, can you just leave your questions until the very end? If we just let the speakers finish their sessions. Thank you. Okay, so the idea was also about Muslims being more criminal than the others, okay? And um, the, uh, 
my group and my, my research group, we have been working on terms of integration and we have to say that we had somehow um, a, a so-called German Islam conference in 2006 where we tried to figure out all the symbolic acts we have to uh, state when we want to become a plural society and we had a very big integration summit also in 2006 where the idea was to come out with every data and facts around the group of Muslims and uh, that was the time for those who, who have worked during this time on German media. It was the rising time of the wording like honor killings and parallel society and terrorism and so on and so forth. And since that, we, then we have collected studies around the group of Muslims. And we have to say that from the government and from the universities, there are something like 185 studies on the group of Muslims. And still there is this idea that the German community or the German population have still this idea that the Muslim is the unknown other even though that we have to state that just if you go by facts and statistics, this is one of the mostly studied group we have in the last years sociologically studied about. But um, uh, what was very strange to us within this debate was that all the data and statistics that we have on the integration processes that we could show with that, that effectively uh, the situation in terms of uh, Bildung, Education. <laughs> Education. And uh, see, this is no important word for me working in a university. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, all this data showed us that, in fact, the group of the Muslim is the group that has made the mo most efforts in Germany within the last 50 years. But still, there is this idea that within this group, and this is what Sarazin mainly said, that because of genetically and culturally predispositions, this group couldn't make any efforts in, in, uh, in development. And uh, for us, it was very strange why the data, especially in a country like Germany, which you would might think that it is a country which relies pretty much on logical stuff like data and statistics, that just with the group of Muslims, this, this, this didn't held true. And so our question was, how could this happen? And we are mainly working now on the idea why there is such a big insecurity in this country. And as, as Liz was telling me, and uh, you, you, you were somehow uh, destroying my imagination about uh, the UK being always the one better than we are. But you know, I just have to tell you that I've been to Austria yesterday, and now I'm very happy with Germany. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I just want to say that it is very strange and we are working pretty much on the concept of national identity building now and asking ourselves why in the debates around, around the Bonlieu in, in France, the Burqa ban and also in the UK, this term of national identity is getting much more important. And our idea in just uh, relying on Germany is that Germany needs pretty much the figure of the other, because 20 years ago, when the two Germanys came together, there were, were two systems docking to each other, and there was a need for a docking station, because these two systems were, in terms of values and norms, completely different from each other. And the idea of Germanness as to our vision, or our, our this is somehow the way we try to, to, uh, to, to erklären, 
to <laughs> explain that. Uh, the idea is that Germanness could only exist or could only pop up or could only be formulated with this strong figure of the other, and for that's why we say that sociologically there is the need for the Muslim as another. And the other vision or idea we have now is we have the European Union and the European identity going down every day. So the, the, we had always Germany as the good European, the most strongest European, and now we can see that German, uh, that European identity cracking down every day on television. And uh, we have that hope that the idea of European identity, which was also an idea about diversity, may convert somehow into German identity with a vision of diversity. That's what we are working on. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, so much easier like this. Um, there will be mics in the audience. I'm going to ask a couple of questions actually of our panelists, then open it up to the audience and ask Liz to come and join us uh, in, a, in a short while. Um, 10, 15 minutes or so. Um, I'm going to open up by asking a question to um, Julian um, on what you were saying in terms of how it is um, difficult to intervene uh, with a national press to get a sense of where you can intervene and how you can intervene. And um, our research has also shown that when it comes to local media, there's obviously a sensitivity. There's a nuance there that the local media pick up. So I have two questions for you. One is that absolutely accepting that the local media is the one that is the one most close to the issues of the communities. Um, the issue of funding also means that those local media are now closing. Mm. So what do you do in that instance where um, the ability to interact is no longer there. Secondly, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, accepting that majority of media professionals um, in the UK, we talk about the UK, come from a particular background, I think uh, I would be correct to say that middle class and if not above. So the idea of um, critiquing um, in some ways um, is, is obviously very, very important as a democratic and a citizen. But what can you critique when the liberal, lib, illiberalism of the liberals are the ones who are actually um, writing those newspapers and those stories? Well, I mean, my own view, and I've done, a, I've done some research on this and also read other people's research on this, is that on the whole, journalists are quite liberal people. Um, and the, uh, many of them are not at all happy with what it is they, they end up writing. I'm talking about the national press here in, in, in particular. Um, I say not a great deal of work has been on this. Yes, it's absolutely true. They're mostly middle class. Um, and again, I've done some work on you know, the, the class and also the, the ethnic basis of, of, of journalists. And certainly... You know, ethnic minorities are very, very underrepresented. And yes, a lot of journalists are indeed middle class. But I think they're kind of, on the whole, middle class people with fairly small L uh, liberal views. So my point really would be to, to, be, would be to reiterate this earlier on, which would be a very good thing. If A, 
trade unions like the NUJ could be once again properly recognized within uh, newspapers where many of them have been de-recognized. Two, if there could be conscience clauses uh, for journalists. And three, to come back to your first question, yes, it's absolutely appalling that because of economic factors, um, mostly to do with underinvestment, uh, local newspapers are closing, journalists are very badly paid on, on, on local newspapers. Um, the only way in which I think you can try to, to, to resolve this is if, is if there could be some kind of um, state support for sections of the local press, but the minute you utter those words, you realize how unlikely that is. Um, then in, in which case, the only thing I think is for local newspapers to wake up, um, stop giving so much money to shareholders and directors, and for goodness sake to do something to establish a proper internet presence. If, if news, local newspapers established a presence on, on, on the internet, they wouldn't have seen their advertising revenue floating off elsewhere. The advertising revenue would have gone to the internet, the internet version of the newspaper. That would be really, really important. And just to conclude, you know, I think it, when we're talking about critique and contestation, the, 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 the sites offered by the internet are incredibly important here. We should never, never underestimate that. Thank you very much. Can I ask you to come in, Myra, in terms of your work um, looking at the research on the Arab uh, media, um, whether what Julian has said has had resonance or is there any kind of convergence, for want of a word? Yes. Um, one of the reasons that um, our participants uh, in most European countries do turn to Arab media is because they feel completely disillusioned with the national European uh, media. As the quotation with which I finished um, demonstrates, I think, quite vividly. It's very important to note, of course, that people do not turn to Arabic media only as a reaction to the limitations of the national media. Um, the point is that people have different connections and they can do that. But definitely there is a sense of, uh, of media playing a key role in this production and reproduction of, um, of, uh, of migrants and of course more than uh, other migrants, Muslims as others. I want to go to um, Lamia. Um, your question in terms or your statement in regards to the um, role and the voice of liberal Muslims um, in uh, Germany. Um, one thing that I've always been quite taken by or um, concerned with, I suppose, to some extent, is why is it that Muslims have to always come forward and to defend themselves? Why is it that you have to get involved in a debate where five years later you may say, well, I'm a, I'm a German, you know, or I'm a Brit, that's who I am. So how is it that, and who are these liberal Muslims? And why should we expect them to also be involved in this discussion and debate? Well, I don't defend myself when I'm saying I'm German. For me, it's something very normal. It's really normal for me to say I'm German with Syrian background. Oh, I'm Syrian, German, I'm an I don't know what, but... Uh, most of the Muslims, and at that point you are right, are defending themselves. And I would say the chance of the liberals 
of the liberal Muslims would be to say, very not very proud, but very, very strong, yes, okay, we are Germans and we are Muslims and we are living here like every one of you. Um, most of our Muslims in Germany are not that well educated and not that strong to say this or to claim this. This is the, the, the one point, but the other point is also, this is the same like Naika said before, it is really hard to, to, to say this without being conf confronted by the media or without being or without knowing that most of the Germans <laughs> don't want you to be a German. So it is, so I can claim it from my point of view and I can say, well, I'm a German. If you want, if you don't want, I'm a German. But I'm strong enough to say this. If I say, if I see most, or in my mind, most of the people or most of the Muslims, and we know that most of uh, even young Muslims are not so well educated. Most of the young Muslims are um, visiting the, the lower secondary school, it's the Hauptschule uh, in German, in Germany. Um, they are even not well, well educated um, in general. They are even not well educated in terms of Islam. Um, so in Germany, it's hard for them to say we are Germans. In Turkey, for example, it's hard to say we are Turkish because in Germany, they are the Turks and in, the, in Turkey, they are Germans. Um, so they are trying to, to fill this gap and they, okay, they fill it with the Islam. It is pretty easy to say I'm a Muslim because there is nobody, nobody else who can, who can uh, deny this. How? Um, so this is, this is really, I would say, it's nearly a movement, really, uh, after 9-11, that a mass of, of these uh, young people say, oh, we are Muslims, okay. If we are here not Germans and if we are not in, Tur in Turkey, Turks, or in Syria, Syrians, or I don't know where, okay, then we are Muslims and it's pretty comfortable for them. Um, so the other, yeah, your, your second question, you ask wh why, we are, why we are accepted to defend ourselves. I wouldn't say that Germans accept to defend ourselves, but I think one problem is that we, are, that we Muslims are too often in this uh, role of the victim. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is also one point, maybe liberal Muslims are also in this terms a little bit cooler and not, and not falling down in this, not falling uh, into this uh, role of, of being a victim. Most of the Muslims see themselves as a victim, as a victim of, and of course they are, in some kinds, some kind, uh, some terms of a victim. They are of course a victim of uh, the social system. They are a victim of the failed integration politics. They are a victim of so many things, um, but they are not only a victim because they are Muslim. They are a victim because they are less educated. They are a victim because they have thousands of problems. And I would say, even there, we, we have to change our thinking, even in our point, being a Muslim. First of all, what is being a Muslim? What is it, and what is it to be, to be a, it's, I would say, a, a Neudeutsch, a new German, a German. Uh, there is no word to say, to say or, or to, to find, um, because we have this, this uh, uh, definition, what is German? German is who is living in, I don't know, six or seven generations in uh, Germany. And even then, you are not German. Mm -hmm.
Thank you. Um, I think uh, there's obviously a very clear tension um, in terms of the different identities, the um, different situations in the different countries. And it'd be interesting to hear from you um, as a German as to what you've observed in the UK and also what you observed as people living here in the UK. But I just want to ask um, Dr. Nika um, about the plurality of the reality of um, living in Germany or living in the UK where interaction is taking place on a daily basis where people are coexisting or getting along with each other. Most of the time there's a, a national debate about integration having failed. Multiculturalism or the isms uh, to a large extent always brought up as being a, a sign of failure. But um, I'd like you to um, Consider the question as to whether or why has the reality of plurality and the successes that are apparent very much in cities across Europe, why they've had such little impact on attitudes towards immigrants. And in particular, when we talk about immigrants, we always have a discourse. Our discussion today was about integration. And as usual, it becomes a discussion about Muslim integration. So if you could just talk a little bit in terms of why you think um, all of this, the reality on the ground hasn't had much impact at all when it comes to um, social attitudes towards immigration, immigrants. Um. Well, I do think that it had a lot of impact, and I think that these are reactions to this impact. And uh, I would say, uh, because, you know, until we had this image of people coming to Germany as guest workers, being foreigners, we didn't have to deal this out, the moments of belonging. Mm -hmm. But we are now in the very moment of dealing out the future Germany. And I do think that this also has to go hand in hand with conflicts, of course. And uh, I think that we, we acknowledged in, in 2000 that Germany is in fact a country of immigration and now we deal out the structure of this country of immigration. And we, we deal out the moments of belonging and we deal out what is, it, what is it to be a German Muslim, what is it to be a German Turkish per, per, per person or German Spanish or whatsoever, these hyphenated identities. We are talking them out. We are putting this wording into the discourse realm. And we, we are dealing with that. We are, we, we are testing it out from both sides. And uh, these are normal social conflicts in societies that are changing. And I do think that the moment of impact is the moment of realizing that these people don't go back, that these people are going to be part of Germany, and that there are some um, Verteilungskämpfe. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, distribution yeah. conflicts. Yes, <laughs> thank you very much. Distribution conflicts that we are watching now, we're, we're seeing that now. And I do really think that this is normal for postmodern societies. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would say that the wording has pretty much changed. And I would say that, of course, the moment of defending yourself always comes when there is also an offense. A defense is always a reaction to an offense. And uh, there has been a strong offense in the last year, and there has also been a strong defense. And uh, there, uh, as to my uh, 
my research that I am doing, I'm working on hybrid identities in Germany, and there is pretty much hybridity, and, and uh, the, the shifting moments of belongings, you can see them in the youth. It's true that Lamia says that there is a moment of being more, more connected or reconnected to religion or to Islam, but this is not only within Muslims. The, this um, reborn um, moments of, of religiousness it is also something we can see in a lot of globalized uh, countries. And uh, I would really say that um, Germany has pretty much changed within the last years. The last year's debate has been a very terrible one for, for a lot of people. But uh, I can observe that there is also a moment of strongness now. And there, there is also this moment of somehow not denying any longer that we are going to stay there. Because this vision and this idea of the first generation of always having some place somewhere where you, have, where you go back is something what, what the, this dream is a dream that the first generation pretty much gave also to the second. And the second had to deal that out with the parents and with the society. And now we have the third generation and this third, third generation is stating that they definitely will stay in Germany even though we have a group of um, like 20% of the Turkish academia who would say that they will go, but in fact they say that they will go maybe in 15 years. So we don't have this as a real fact, we have that as a vision. But uh, I really do think that there was a big impact. So could one of you, before we open up into the um, audience, um, give us your sense of what are the key differences when it comes to integration in Germany and the UK without ranking? <laughs> Julian is British. Does he want to take this on? Mm, I mean, I do, I do know quite a bit about Germany, but I don't think I do. <laughs> I was hoping to end that on a kind of um, UK versus Germany, um, but it's obviously not going to happen. Um, I'm going to open it up to the, uh, to the audience and um, I'd just like to say thank you very much to the panel. Um, there's a lot of information there and I'm sorry about the shortness of time. And if anybody wants to um, obtain any further information about these individuals and their work, feel free to ask Ali and the team. So first question, I'm going to take it in threes. Uh, I'm going to ask Liz first to come up. Okay, if I can take first three questions from this gentleman here, from this gentleman there, and from the lady above. Is there a mic? Yes. I think the multiculturalism is working, and the politicians, what they are saying, it is uh, for the national level. Can you hold on one second? I don't know if it's working. Some close. I think the multiculturalism is working, but the, what the politicians are saying it is for the national consumptions, but at the local level, they know in their hearts of hearts 
that it is working, and that's why they are taking up within the uh, popular way um, to satisfy those, actually the BNP and the far right group. Uh, but, and so far as the integration is com concerned, it is already over, and uh, the ethnic or minority group, they should work in their uh, local level, and that is the only way it is they can satisfy the, the wider, wider community. That is my comment. Thank you very much. Um, I have a question for Dr. Furutan. Um, when we talk about the denial of multiculturalism, also by European leaders, do you think that it has more to do with the fact that failed integration policies have, have been pursued in the past, in the 1980s and 1990s, and that the denial of multiculturalism is a response to this failure and to satisfy um, European constituents that now are voting for Geert Wilders and for other right-wing uh, populist leaders? Thank you. Um, my question was, um, I was thinking a lot about what Amarita Sen says about the, making the debate about religion. So always putting people's identity in terms of religion and not looking at the broader identities and the broader groups that people are part of. So the question is, how do we, that I have, how can we open up the debate so we acknowledge every part of people's identity and contribution to society other than their relationship to their faith? Thank you. Who was that question addressed to? Great. So if I can ask Liz to take that last question and um, Nika, and then your question, sir, was about local communities and the local level being the most important in terms of moving forward. Um, and then there was a question on the denial of multiculturalism as a response to failure of such policies. And that is to Dr. Nika. Okay. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, the question is, how can we open up a discussion so it isn't just a discussion about religion? Yeah? I think it's about people have identities in many areas yes. other than their religious yes. identity. Yes. And I think if there is such a focus on one part of somebody's identity, yeah. it actually forces people into smaller types of groups. Yeah, absolutely. But I think your question, we have to sort of roll back and we have to roll back and we have to roll back to 2001 and the war on terror and the clash of civilizations thesis. Because basically what's happened is the whole complexity of society has been turned into an argument that uh, what divides us is the class of civilizations and the class of cultures. So basically all the problems, of, our problems that we have in society today are socioeconomic. It's to do with the fact that some people are poor and some people are rich and who's losing out in this, in this world in, in a time of austerity. But we're being fed this argument is that let's understand everything that's going on around us in terms of culture conflict. And within that, culture is turned into religion. So if we want to fight this, this whole massive sea change, 
I think we have to fight that framework right from the very beginning. And I totally agree with you. We have many identities. Um, you know, some of us may have a faith called socialism. We'd like to talk about that. Thank you. Um, well, on the failed integration policies, yes, of course, this is one reason we can say, and we, we always say that comparing it with Germany, that we were pretty much behind the other uh, countries in our integration policies. But now, uh, talking about what Liz said, the convergence between these countries, we can see that also those countries who had a pretty much modern integration policy also are failing now in terms of, of acknowledging diversity and living with diversity. So we have to ask for the next question. Where can it come from then? So we might think that there is a real feeling of insecurity within Western European countries. Uh, we have, in 16 European countries, we have right-wing populist parties in the parliament or in the government. This is more than 65% of European countries having right-wing populist parties on the rise. And even we have these parties in countries like, for example, France, where we always thought that the, the integration policies of France were one of the most modern ones in, if we compare it, for example, to Germany, Italy, Spain, or Hungary, Poland, and so on. But um, so this might be an explanation. I would say that another explanation uh, would be that these moments of insecurity have risen somehow when the globalization process ended up in, in a very neoliberal moment of market um, um, market dictation somehow. So uh, after the the end of of the. Um, communist word, if you can say that this was maybe a corrective to neoliberal systems, there are a lot of people feeling much more insecurity in terms of uh, um, having their, you know, if we go back 20 years ago, you had contracts, long-term contracts, that was, that's what in Germany the people are saying now, that they feel insecure about losing their jobs, they feel insecure about their uh, rente, pensions, pen, about their pensions, they feel insecure about uh, their education processes, they know that they can be very well educated but still being without a job, and all these moments of insecurity have to be canalized somehow. And uh, the idea of the scapegoat, what Liz formulated, is one idea in explaining maybe these moments of feeling, uh, not feeling well with multiculturalism, not feeling well with everything going to be changed and just wishing that everything would be like in the old times and, and then on, as I explained to you, the old times in Germany were homogeneous. So this is qu pretty much connected to a past time and this past time is something which in the dreams of the people was a time with much more security process, with much more feelings of security. Anybody like to take the question of the local level in terms of successful integration? Okay. Please. Yeah, um, uh, yeah just totally agree with that. I mean, it goes back to the whole idea about the representation of the reality. The reality is really different from, from what's 
been given to us by the politicians, but I'd just like to throw another thing in, because I think the reason why they're attacking multiculturalism is because they want to give us nationalism. And the reason why they want to give us nationalism is, look at Greece, look at what's happening in Athens. And they seem to believe that, I think the, that our leaders are, I mean, I think, you know, the world, <laughs> that there is a, a, an economic uh, dysfunctional system. The market state has failed. You know, the market doesn't rule. It's not cohering society anymore. And they want to give us nationalism to cohere us. And they think that's the kind of elastoplast that's going to stop these, these mass movements. So that's what I think it's the first sign of that. Thank you very much. Um, gentlemen down here, can I ask you all, please, as you ask your question beforehand, to just give us your name and who you're affiliated with. Um, and the lady at the back straight in front of me, and then the lady over there in the back with the orange T-shirt. Yeah, hello. Uh, my name is Martin Okorego. I am... Uh, my name is... Can you hear me? Yep. Wonderful. Uh, my name is Martin Okorego. I am a German citizen of dual heritage. Um, my dad comes from Nigeria. My mom is German. And um, I'm just interested, obviously, in the topic of diversity and how we can move on forward in the future, um, how we build uh, um, communities uh, for the future. So now I heard that we use the word diversity often in a negative context. But um, I want to make sure that diversity is a benefit, um, not only to uh, international corporates, but also to um, um, citizens, um, um, local governments. But um, I try to I'll try to pick up on the fear of job losses and the future building of our societies. How can we tackle um, or combat the fear that the natives have um, um, in terms of uh, the moment of the economic downturn? What resources should diversity, in a broader sense, have in order to create jobs or economic? And performance in their society, so that the the integration is on the improvement that the migrants would, in a positive term, have an interest in the local economy, in the urban economy, and therefore, hopefully, um, is a mechanism of creating trust, and maybe even friendship, to in order to create a greater um, a Europe or even national um, ideas. So, basically, what kind of resources should um, uh, my diverse communities have? in order to create wealth, maybe, for their urban economies. Um, thank you. The second question is here. Uh, my name is Zhang Hong. I'm, uh, um, it's here. It's, uh, I am a master's student in sociology at LLC. Um, my question is, that my one of my observations is that I find this term of multiculturalism might be a little bit um, confusing or misleading because when we talk about multiculturalism, we might be meaning uh, multi-ethnicity or, multi or religious freedom and all sorts of things. So by talking only about culture, I find it might be um, putting it in a more rosy uh, context of discussing about all these um, conflicts. So um, my question really is, um, um, since we have this dominating institution of nation states still, in, I think, until today, do you think there's a limitation for um, such an institution of nation state um, to accommodate uh, multi-ethnicity or multi-religion? And so if the answer is yes. How can we redefine the 
this concept of nation state, or should we just come come up with a, a new con conception? Thank you. Hi, my name is Nadine Elanani, and I'm um, in the law school at Brunel University. Um, my question is for Lamia. I was wondering, do you not worry that by defining your group as um, liberal Islamic foundation, you're possibly engaging in the debate using the terms of the dominant bigoted host society? Because by implication, when you call yourselves the liberal Islamic foundation, that the implications that is as opposed to the extreme um, Muslim identity that is sort of imposed on all Muslims. So it's sort of this Islamophobic debate that you have all of, the, all of them are extreme, but we are the liberals. Um, does, did that occur to you as possibly a risk in, in defining yourself as a liberal Muslim? That just by implication, there's another kind of Muslim that you have to worry about the rest of them. Thanks. Great. Um, we'll start with Lamia to uh, that last question. Well, we, we, we've chosen the name liberal because the majority was <laughs> or, or, or wanted the name. This is the first point. Uh, the second point is no, because liberal is nothing, first of all, nothing mm, typical um, for the politics to say someone is liberal, liberal or not, because, you know, we have liberal Jews, we have liberal uh, Christs or Christ. There is, I would say, there's, this is not a typical um, term for politics, first of all, and I wouldn't say, and why should, shouldn't there should be there also liberal Muslims? Um, maybe if you say, if you see the context of the whole Islam debate in Germany, because we say they are conservatives, and there are maybe less conservatives, and they are fundamentalists, um, maybe this would be a problem, but it wasn't, the name wasn't an answer uh, on the debate in Germany. It was really, it was coming from the group, from the group to say, okay, we want to choose this name. Okay, tell me a better name. Okay, we, we can, yeah, really, we, we, we discussed it, I would say, two days along, two days long, what will our name be? How should we, how should we name, call ourselves? Liberal, modern, European, German, so Okay, we, we've chosen liberal, and we know pretty well that, of course, there will be people, and there will be um, even non-Muslim who will say, "Ah, okay, the liberal are the good ones, and the ultra-conservatives are the bad ones," and we try to to say, "No, no, that this wasn't our aim um, uh, when we, we when we've chosen the name liberal." We try really to say, "We are liberal. We are thinking um, freiheitlich." Freedomly. Freedomly? Can we say freedomly? Okay. Um, I don't know. Not really. Okay. But you know, I hope you you know what I you know what I uh, want to say. Freedom in mind. Yeah. Um, but this doesn't mean that we can fast liberally, or we can, or we can uh, do our prayer in a very liberal way, or we can um, go to to Mecca very liberal. Of course not. The basics of Islam will stay the basic. But I would say that we are of course for the equality of uh, women and men and we are of course uh, trying to to um, getting an inner islamic debate on these topics because we think that there are so many points uh, or, or topics uh, within the islamic community that are not they are not being discussed that we try to 
to get them discussed. For example, um, is it allowed for a woman to pray with, with men? And if not, why not? Because we know that in the Quran there is no, no single word um, uh, regarding this point. And we try to, to get these debates and, and we know that the ultra-conservatives are not very happy about it. But we don't care, we try to, to get it out and to, to work it out. Can I ask um, Julian to take the question on the uh, diversity as a benefit um, and how to uh, acquire the resources needed? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that. I just want to come on to the religious question first, though, because two people have raised it, one lady in the balcony and lady below her to some extent. And this reminded me of, of something. I think that, you know, one of the problems in, in, in the way in which Muslims are represented by the media, and this does very much go back to the kind of um, Samuel Huntington uh, thesis and the clash of civilizations, is, is they are represented very, very much in religious terms, but Muslims aren't only religious, they're all sorts of, of, of other things as well. They're male and female and working class and, and middle class and they're different ethnicities and whatever. And what this reminded me of was, of course, that the, the Irish situation you know, we're, we're now fortunately out of the, the, the troubles in, in Northern Ireland, but when they were going on um, in their most recent incarnation in the 1960s through to the 1990s, it was always represented, oh, oh yes, this is Protestant versus Catholic, uh, it's all to do with religion, uh, if only we could get rid of these religious bigots and, and differences, everything would be alright, which completely concealed all sorts of other reasons for the conflict in, in Northern Ireland, not least the history of uh, English imperialism toward, towards the island, and the shocking poverty which many people lived in over there, not just Catholics, but many um, Protestants as well. So it's very, very easy, I think, um, for the media uh, to simply concentrate on one one dimension, if you like, of, of Muslims, and, and, and that is religiousness. Well, lots of, quite a few Muslims are secular, actually. They're, they're, they're secular Muslims. You have secular Jews. So I think it's very important that, that, that Muslims and, and do try to kind of escape from that kind of pigeonholing by the media and to argue that they're not, they're not just a religious grouping and that the problems that they face you know, also have to do, for example, with things like poverty and uh, discrimination. As for the resources issue, I think the greatest resources that anybody can have, really, I'm thinking here of um, a book by Raymond Williams called um, Resources of Hope. And it really is extremely important, I think, to have those resources along with material resources too. Again, the problem is that with all this waffle and stuff about um, the big society, all sorts of groups in, in, in society which could in fact be helping to encourage diversity, to fight against uh, discrimination, etc., etc., are all having their funding closed down. So, I mean, in, in, in my view, the, the, the whole attack on the notion of the public and on public expenditure and public servants, which, in which again, by the way, the press play an extremely divisive and, and destructive role, is not helpful when it comes to thinking about 
you know, literal uh, resources which could go into, into groups which could be help, helpful. So we do have to fall back to some extent, I think, on resources of hope. And can I ask uh, Myra and Nika to take the other question, the one on uh, nationhood? Yes, uh, the question about the nation state and how far can we go. Um, yes, as you said, uh, this is what we're stuck with. And until we find anything better, uh, this is the political system that is, uh, uh, the system of organization um, of um, uh, that we live with. I think it's very important, however, and I think debates like that and initiatives like, uh, uh, like uh, the present one, it is important to remind ourselves and to move away from a cultural understanding, culturalist understanding of the nation state. Nation state is a, a system of political organization. Um, and that's how it developed, and that's what we see it uh, developing as primarily. The culturalist understanding of the nation state is an ideological burden that comes with the history of it, but which not necessarily, uh, uh, we don't have necessarily to live with it. Um, there's a reason to say that, yes, perhaps there's something in the nation state that we might still want to keep and, and, and behold and, um, and protect. And this is the fact that the, the state um, should have the responsibility of protecting the rights of its citizens and its people. And a lot of these discussions here is about protecting the rights of all citizens or all people within a specific territory controlled by a specific authority. Thus, um, unless we know where to go, I think we have to have a realistic, uh, to, to approach the nation state in a realistic manner within which we emphasize the good and positive heritage of the democratic governance and then perhaps you know, we struggle for better versions of everything else around it. Uh, well, I come back to the question how we could communicate diversity in terms of more resources for a country. And um, I, I'm just, um, I, I'm, I mean, uh, we had a big debate on uh, how to communicate diversity in Germany, and I would say that there is a new, there is a need for a new narrative, just to say that Germany has in fact become a country of immigration, and you know, narratives for nations can be somehow constructed, and they have always been constructed. Just take the idea of the U.S. as a nation of immigrants, and then you can read out that this idea, which is me meant to be an idea of, of a funding idea, has in fact not been a funding idea. It has risen in the 1960s. And the idea of Canada with un unity within diversity is also an idea which was established in the 1960s. And the new conservative uh, prime minister of Canada has won the last elections with this idea of unity within diversity, even though he's conservative. So narratives can be constructed. And uh, in fact, we need such a new narrative for Germany. The idea of new Germany has to be somehow constructed. But I don't think that we should construct it on this economical idea. We don't have to construct it on uh, counting or, or, or establishing or asking people uh, whether they, how much they cost or how much their value for, for the uh, Brutto Sozialprodukt. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
for the GDP is. So uh, this is an idea which should not be communicated like this. We just have to say, in fact, we have to say that this is the new Germany. It will not change unless something terrible happens. And we have to somehow deal our living out together. We, we, I, I mean, we should say that we cannot implement love for each other. But we just can't say that this is a democratic country and in democratic countries there is the right of being different. And I don't have to love someone who wants to have a homogeneous monocultural German society, but I have to live with that person. And this is also his right to think like that. And I think in diverse societies we will have these forms of confrontations and these forms of social conflict and it will be a utopia to think that maybe one day we will all love each other but we can dream about that the thing is it's never happened there's never been a time where any community or society has ever lived peaceably together so I agree this whole concept of the multi-culti world is not quite the reality Liz you've got a few comments on, uh, on the questions Uh, if I could just add a couple of points, um, both on the multicultural question and also on the, the question of the moderate Muslim and the extremist Muslim. I'm not responding to Lamy. I understand what you're saying. It's a question of self-definition, but just saying a little bit about the debate here. Multiculturalism means pluralism. It just means cultural pluralism. And for me, cultural pluralism is a core value. Because if you don't have cultural pluralism, you have the tyranny of the majority. You know, the idea that minorities have rights as well. And I think pluralism also means political pluralism, uh, respect for different political views. But unfortunately, what we find in the debate around the good Muslim versus the bad Muslim here, the moderate Muslim, is increasingly it's actually a way of clamping down on political pluralism because a moderate Muslim in this country is the Muslim who supports the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan and the war on terror and the extremist Muslim is the person who disagrees with British foreign policy. So what concerns me with the whole framework about the way that we're defining uh, the moderate Muslim is also the root through which we are actually clamping down on political pluralism and dissent. Okay. Uh, lady here in the pink. Sorry. The lady in the pink over there, um, over there, and right at the back over there. Uh, hello. I'm Mira Bonivam, and I come from Bulgaria. I'm nth generation Bulgarian. And I'm still junior in high school. And I would like to say that here uh, we heard a lot of uh, a deep analysis of the problem. Uh, many, uh, a huge diversity of sides of the problem from Germany, from uh, UK. And yes, there is a problem. But now I think it's the time to focus on what's the solution. It's all of us. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, okay. Uh, Max Leifmann, I'm one of the organizers of the forum. My question would be to, to, to Nika concerning the question, the question of love. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I would agree with you that I don't have to, that I don't have to love Tilo Sarrazin and, and Broda and all these kind of guys. But the question is because you talked about what happened last year, you know, an attack and an defense. And my question would be, where, where did this happen, you know? In, in what kind of public sphere? I mean, if, if, we, if you think about this attack and defense happening in a way of Habermasian public sphere, you know, then, then the debate has to be based on principles of mutual respect. And my question would be, I think that recently or increasingly these principles of mutual respect are kind of violated. In a way, like as, as I'm from Germany, you know, um, kind of a, a founding principle of, of Germany to say what happened before 1945 must never happen again, you know. And, and I would say these kind of principles of mutual respect are increasingly violated by people like Tilo Darazin, by Hendrik and Boda. And my question would be, like me as an intellectual or us as intellectuals, how should we respond to this challenge that people increasingly violate these principles of mutual respect? Can I just ask this lady over here, because she had her hand up, and um, I'm sorry, you jumped in. <laughs> so can I just ask this lady to ask her question, then yourselves down there. Hi, my name is Jen. I'm a postgraduate student in sociology from the USA, and my question is directed to Liz. You mentioned convergence a lot in your address, and the convergence of European countries and the attack on multiculturalism, similar patterns of violence, etc. And so I was wondering if you could just speculate a bit about what it is about this current socio-political time that's causing all sorts of different European countries from different histories and different patterns of immigration in the past to converge and to look so similar right now. Um, hi, I'm Matthew, a postgraduate student at LSE, um, doing about nationalism. Um, my question is to Liz. Um, you talk about fighting these frameworks of binary terms that um, emerged post-2001 and then the war on terror. Um, and what I kind of want to put to you is that I don't think you're actually doing that. Um, and the reason I say that is you framed your speech in terms of the age of extremism uh, the rise of the far right and things like that. I feel by doing that, what you're actually doing is giving more of a focus to those binary terms that they use. And although you're trying to deal with them, I, I think there may be a better way to approach it. Um, and so what I'd like you to respond to is the idea that Nike um, used, the idea of the second generation, the third generation, um, being more rooted in the place they were living. Um, and then perhaps maybe the focus should shift to how do we encourage that. And I don't mean that in a simple kind of, you know, um, authoritarian, dominant society and, and immigrant society. What I mean is the cross um, relationship between the two. And if it, that means discussing and debating ideas such as parallel societies, maybe we shouldn't shy away from that. Maybe actually engaging with those ideas and showing how we can improve it um, is actually a better way forward. So in some sense, the first question that was asked, but a little bit fleshed out, like, should we not now focus on how to improve the situation and how to kickstart this liberal multiculturalism? Okay, great. Liz, can you take that question and the question before that? Um, I'm not sure I understood the question. Um, I know you disagree with me. <laughs> and I think you thought I was focusing too much on the extreme right. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, but the extreme right actually exists in the society. In fact, one of the things that I think, you know, I was thinking this as we were speaking, you know, it's just, it just was making me very, very angry in a way because the whole discussion is always about that immigration, migration is breaking down community cohesion. But actually, it's the way the fascists have pu pu pushed our societies further and further towards the right, which is breaking down societies. And if I focused on the extreme right, it was to show how they have affected and polluted the mainstream. So I think we just differ on that. When it comes to things like looking at things like parallel societies, I think that we should be looking at the history. Because one of the things that really annoys me about the debate, it's like we have no historical memory. You know, history starts five minutes ago. I mean, when the Turkish guest workers came to Germany to work in the factories and in the, in the, to make cars, and they lived in barracks and in separate societies, nobody gave a damn. Now suddenly they're talking about parallel societies. When women who wear the hijab were working as cleaners, nobody gave a toss about women working the hijabs, but it's because they're teachers, because they're civil servants, and because people are jealous of their advancement, they want to push them back. In fact, what was interesting is I met a, an elderly Jewish guy whose family survived Auschwitz uh, only a few days ago. And we were, uh, he's um, part of a group called Soul of Europe and who are trying to sort of bring about dialogue. And he said to me, you know, I asked him, why is it like this at the moment? Why is this anti-Muslim feeling, which is so much like anti-Semitism? And he said to me, he'd met some German Turks, and he said, they're just cleverer than everybody else. It was exactly the same with the Jews. They were cleverer. They were making it in middle-class society. They were making advancement. People were jealous and wanted to push them back. And I think that's a lot of what is happening here. And it goes exactly into your question, which I did understand. Thank you. Um, we are in a moment where, you know, it's, it all goes back to globalization. It goes back to the questions about the nation state. In a globalized economy where financial markets are all linked, the nation state has less power to control what happens in the society. The market, the market state rules. So there's all sorts of fragmentations and things breaking down and things that can't be held together. So that's why I see all these things happening. It's like what I said before. Nationalism is the way to, to, to cohere things, to, to try and glue what is breaking apart. Sorry, my hand's a bit long. Thank you. Keep doing this. Um, Nika, can you take the question on principles of mutual respect and how can we respond to this? And if I can ask Julian, uh, Myra and Lamia just for a few quick thoughts on how can we actually live together? What's the solution? Mm, well, yes, it's true that mutual respect uh, has somehow uh, lost space in Germany within the last year's debate. And uh, the question of how we could react on this is very difficult to answer because everyone has to react in a different way, of course. We, as I said, live in diverse societies and so the manners of 
of reaction are also diverse. So you had one reaction with your letter, uh, not wanting or, or, or making clear that the panel uh, which was invited here with Zaratzin and Broda was a very unbalanced panel and this was a kind of reaction. We have to make interventions wherever we can, I do think so. And you know, we've got lots of groups discussing different things so we could say we don't give, we don't have to give him the space to talk. But this is something which is unreal in, in medial societies. So we can talk about that and we can uh, say that this is important, but we live in societies with a lot of media and we can never say the media, please don't give him a forum because they will do so. So um, I would say that uh, we, what we have to somehow understand really, and this is really the most difficult point, is that one main idea of postmodernism is anything goes. And we have to live with this phrase of anything goes. We have to deal that out within ourselves. And we have to get somehow in this position to learn the most difficult thing that we are contacted with. And this is the moment of contradictions. We have these contradictions within hybridity. We have contradictions of people who we want to defend. And then suddenly we see that those people who we want to defend are also racists and it is very difficult for us to defend them whatsoever and then we don't want to defend anybody because we, we victimize people when we defend them. So it is times of, of contradictions and I would say that we all are somehow unsecure within these wordings and these times and you know Liz when you say that this guy answered you well they are cleverer but then I would ask, who is they? You know, some are clever, some are not clever. And some are, uh, I don't know, whatsoever, uh, um, economically so successful, some are not. Some are terrorists and most of them are not. But you know, in these times, we have to state that why are we talking about the 1% who have this affiliation to whatsoever Islamism milieus and why are we not talking about the 99% and then we get to Julian and Julian have, will tell us that this is one of the old manners how media works so maybe this could be an explanation but it is not uh, not uh, befriedigend satisfying yes you know when I came today from when I changed the plane in Berlin I passed the news and I saw on TV just the news ticker and our Ministry of Interior was saying there is again a rise of Islamism milieus in Germany and it is a rise of 1100 people and this makes in a sum 37,000 persons being within the Islamist milieu so the news was Islamism is on the rise then we have 37,000 and we have 4.3 million Muslims living in Germany. So he could somehow bring out this news saying less than 1% of the Muslim community is in the Islamism milieu. But the news was rise of Islamism. So this is the moment, matters of communication and maybe this is if I would could ask your question about what can we do about that, I would say we should be cleverer in working with media. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I would totally agree. And I think Liz is absolutely right, by the way, to kind of bring in an historical dimension here. I mentioned the Irish problem from way back. You've mentioned, of course, the, the Jewish problem. You know, in the 19, first half of the 19th, uh, 20th century, um, it was very much the Jews who were being treated by uh, the British state and by the British media in particular as Muslims are now. There was a huge amount of um, stuff in papers at the Daily Mail about, oh my God, this society is being flooded by Jewish immigrants. So it's not, of course, just the fault of the media. The media are, are embedded in much wider and bigger social processes, but part of those processes definitely are processes of, of othering and kind of monster making and um, folk devil creation for reasons that I've I've tried to, to touch on. Now the problem is what can we do? Well the problem is that when we live in a in a world like this, which is not only kind of globalized, but where we see the increasing kind of hegemony, at least at governmental level, of neoliberalism. Well, unfortunately, the processes of neoliberalism and, and, and globalization tend only to kind of atomize and separate people. But if we're not careful, unless some kind of alternatives are, are developed to these ideas um, on the left, we really are going to end up in a horrible kind of Hobbesian war, it seems to me, of, of all against all. You know, that's, that's where this kind of individualism is actually going to lead us. So my concluding point it really would be here, we've, we've heard about various failures, perhaps, of, of, of multiculturalism in some instances, but to me, really, the startling thing today is the failure of you know, left of center thought. All around uh, Europe we see, I would have thought, all too visibly the, 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 the bankruptcy of neoliberal ideas and the literal bankruptcy of, of certain kind of institutions like, like banks. What's happened? Has the left had uh, a massive revival and have people suddenly seen the light? Well, no, they bloody well haven't. Um, what, what's actually happened is that the left has either remained remarkably silent or it's actually taken up the neoliberal cause. And what has happened is that all sorts of kind of populist and right-wing and demagogic and nationalistic ideologies have flowed into the void left by the, the, the erstwhile left. And if you haven't read these articles, I really recommend them to you. There's been a fantastic strand recently on um, open democracy. I'm sure many of you are aware of the open democracy website, which I think is a really, really good website. And there's a fantastic series of articles which have been um, edited and uh, by Ash Amin under the title um, Xenophobic Europe. And I think a lot of the issues that we've been talking about here uh, this evening, othering, neoliberalism, globalization, negative responses, what should be done, uh, are, are all in these articles, which I, Liz has, has written one, and I really do uh, recommend them to you. I think part of, this, of the solution is to discuss what we are doing at the moment, to, to, to name the problem, to discuss the problem. I think this is, first of all, part of the solution. And 
The second thing would be, of course, this is what Naika said too, to open our eyes to see that uh, reality is not that what we maybe dream or dream of to be. Um, this is the first thing, and I would say there are many um, actions or many, many um, how should I say it, many yes, initiatives um, for example in Germany when um, Tilo Zahatzin wrote his book um, one of our friends Hila Sesgin, she's, a, she's an author in Germany edited a book we called it Manifest der Fielen Naika and me are one of uh, 30, 40 authors um, also Muslim authors that responded and at the same time or, or even before at the same time we uh, wrote a letter to the president of Germany and wanted him to make a statement to say that we are part of Germany and we are not, not the others. And, and he did. And he did. So there are, or there is a success, but we have all to partici participate on this. We have to, to open our mouth. I think this is the biggest problem. We can't, even if we, if we say, okay, we are not of this, we, have, we don't have the same opinion, but we have to do anything. We have even to say anything. And if, if you are going out now to spread these words that we, we, we said, this would be one thing. Maybe not enough, of course, but we don't know who, who, we, who we can influence by this word. So let's see and try. Um, just a couple of things to what has already been said. Um, I think, you know, uh, to, to follow about the uh, point of being active citizens first and foremost and, uh, and propose um, an alternative vision uh, of what is currently um, dominant. I think naming the problem and resisting the racialized discourse which is becoming increasingly predominant, not only in the public uh, sphere but also in policies, which will have an effect on the life of many, many people. Um, it's a big issue. So on one hand it's about active citizenship, on the other it's about uh, having a voice. And since we're all sitting at, the, uh, at an LSE theater, I think the responsibility also of the public intellectual um, is, is huge. And there isn't a huge tradition in this country at least of public intellectuals, but I think each one of us has this responsibility. And partly it's bringing our research, which actually uh, shows and um, and deconstructs many of those myths about what others do, what Muslims or migrants uh, uh, bring as a threat to the society, bringing this kind of research in the public domain, perhaps in events like this, or maybe not only necessarily in privileged environments like the LSE, um, would help. But a change starts with small steps. So. Um, I'm going to hand over moderation because I have to get back and watch Coronation Street. So I'm going to ask one last question before I go to Liz, which is um, about convergences. And you mentioned um, how there is a very disturbing trend across Europe when it comes to anti-Muslim xenophobic trends. There was a, a recent survey by a group of German academics, I think it only came out last week or early this week, where they polled a number of countries, the UK, Germany, France, Poland, Portugal, um, 
and a number of others. And what they found out of the five Western European and the two Eastern European countries was that when it came to the questions about anti-Muslim sentiment, um, it was highest in Germany and it was also highest in Poland. So in all our discussions so far, we haven't spoken about Central and Southeastern Europe in terms of the trend or the disturbing move towards a, a very strong far-right, um, very explicit um, government. So if I could just ask you to just say a few words about that. About Central and, and Southern Europe. Um, convergence. Convergence. Oh. <laughs> convergence. Um, well, in terms of the southern European countries, I mean, I think they led the way on the attack on multiculturalism. I mean, Berlusconi immediately after 9-11 was, was quite clear that um, uh, multiculturalism equals cosmopolitanism equals culture conflict and that European I mean he made a statement about we should be confident that European civilization is the superior civilization uh, the Spanish centre-right politicians made similar points so um, they were advancing in advance of the rest of Europe in that respect um, Central European countries Hungary Poland um, our friend from Bulgaria, did you see the, um, that horrible YouTube about the attack on the mosque, the central mosque? Oh, it was awful. I don't know if other people saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Attica. Oh, you were there. It's absolutely dreadful. You should all watch it on YouTube. Um, uh, the uh, Attica, the far-right party, held a rally outside the central mosque, um, and they, they literally... I mean, it was like watching... Sorry to give a power. It was it was 1930s stuff. They launched a massive assault on the mosque. They were burning the fez. They burnt the prayer mats. They attacked. I mean, it's on YouTube. It's absolutely horrendous. Um, what I mean, what every country does have a different a different history. Obviously, in Bulgaria, with the whole thing about the Turks are coming, the Turks are coming. It's it, it's 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 slightly different. I find that in Central Europe, the discourse is much more around anti-Roma and anti-Semitism than it is around the mosque. The, the stuff about the mosque is there, but it, it, it's kind of a similar thing with anti-Semitism. You didn't need Jews, you didn't need synagogues to have anti-Semitism, and it's the same in the Central European countries. You don't have to have many mosques or Muslims, but the, the, the anti-Muslim sentiment is there. But primary focus is attacks on the Roma, and in discourse, a kind of very nasty, snide anti-Semitism. Thank you very much. As far as as an organization, the Open Society Foundations has been very closely engaged and involved in, in particular trying to uh, combat discrimination against Roma communities in Central Southeastern Europe. And we notice a very clear uh, emergence um, of uh, an anti-Muslim sentiment in Central Southeastern Europe, which, as you said, has very little um, except for Bulgaria and a few other countries when it comes to Muslim populations. Um, I'm going to um, bow out at this end, but before I go, I'm going to do a bit of PR. So this is Liz's book, A Suitable Enemy, 
and um, it's available from um, Liz and her uh, website if you want to order it and I've got to do a plug for our own book as well which is um, the first of a series that we uh, released in 2009 looking at public policies on integration. Um, on that note I'd like to personally thank the panellists and the organisers for what has been a very stimulating and interesting discussion. I think once we get into discussion there's always a limitation when it comes to time um, so I'd like to ask you to carry on with, uh, with your discussions, with your studies, and um, I would love to be part of this at some point in the near future, so thank you. Uh, thank you, Nazia. We're actually also going to stop it here. Uh, thank you, Nazia, Neka, Julian, Miria, Lamia. Um, I think it's safe to say that uh, this panel has given us very much food for thought and uh, so I think we really, really have to be thankful for them to coming here. Um, if you want to have a look at our website, you can just Google us and sign up for a newsletter. We will put all the links up for the podcast, for uh, the report, photographs and everything else and keep you posted about any upcoming future events that we might be planning. Um, those of you who are interested in continuing the discussion, we have the LSE's uh, George IV pub just around the corner from here to ourselves, the upstairs room there. So we'd be happy to, if, if you joined us to go there. It's just if you get out of the building, take two lefts and a right, uh, basically by the water stones, and uh, join us uh, uh, for drinks and nibbles. But uh, first, please join me in, in showing appreciation to, to our panelists uh, for, for coming and speaking with, to us. It's a fantastic panel.